The Triathlon Show 307. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Dr. Mehdi Kordi. Mehdi is a track cycling coach, in particular in sprinting, currently working with the Royal Dutch Cycling Federation. The Dutch team had uh, a great Olympic Games, bringing home multiple golds and other medals. So we will discuss that and we'll discuss generally how a track sprinters train. And we will discuss some of the research that Mehdi has done. So lots of bits and pieces here that I'm sure you will enjoy. But before that, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration create electrolyte products that you can match to how you sweat and fueling products that make it easy for you to hit your numbers. When it comes to electrolytes and sodium in particular, remember that we all have different sweat rates and we also have very different sweat sodium concentrations. So for example, I personally lose more than 2000 milligrams of sodium per liter of sweat. And on the bike in a race, I might sweat around 1.5 liters per hour. Of course, this depends a bit on the conditions. Uh, my aim is to replace at least 70% of the sodium that I lose. So that means that, let's say for a 7.3 bike, I would need to consume at least 4,200 milligrams of sodium just on the bike. That depends a bit on how fast or slow the course is. If it's slower, then I'll need to consume more than that. But on the other hand, somebody who loses 500 milligrams per liter of sweat and sweats only 0.8 liters per hour would need to replace about eight times less than that for the same duration out on the course. Precision hydration's products and free online sweat tests or advanced in-person sweat tests make it easy for you to figure out what you should do when it comes to electrolytes. Use the promo code show 15 to get 15% off your first order on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka. Roka produces exceptional quality triathlon wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, goggles, performance sunglasses, as well as prescription eyeglasses and sunglasses. If you want to go faster in the water or on the bike, a Roka wetsuit or trisuit might be for you. Or if you just want to have a more comfortable, functional and stylish pair of eyeglasses, look to their range of eyewear. Today, I want to highlight Roka's Sim shorts, which are neoprene shorts that add buoyancy in the pool. This has several benefits in that it allows you to train the specific body position of swimming in a wetsuit without having to actually bring the wetsuit to the pool. It also allows you to learn and understand a good body position if that's something that you're, you struggle with normally. It can help you add more swimming volume, in particular on days when your legs are tired and sinky from bike and run training. And finally, it can also help you better work on other points for improvement in your stroke than just body position. So if you struggle with body position, then it can be difficult to work, for example, on your catch effectively. But the shorts can help you take care of the body position so you can really focus in on that catch instead. They're brilliant quality shorts with great buoyancy, extremely durable. I can highly recommend them. Visit roca.com forward slash TTS for your entire Roca order. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dr. Mehdi Kordi. Welcome to that triathlon show, Mehdi. How are you doing? Very well, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's my pleasure. Can Can you start by just introducing yourself uh, for the audience and give give us an overview of who you are and uh, what your current and past roles in, in endurance sports uh, have been? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'll keep it brief. I don't want to send people to sleep just yet. Um, but yeah, my name is Mehdi Cordy. I currently work as a coach uh, for the Dutch Cycling Track Sprint Team. Um, prior to that, I had voluntarily worked for the Who Watt Bike Team on the track. So, um, well, in my current position, actually, I, I coach two endurance riders on the track. The Who Watt Bike Team are a team pursuit team on the track, which is classified as endurance, but I guess to a triathlete, four minutes or sub four minutes uh, isn't endurance, but at least in my book it is. Um, and prior to that, I worked at British Cycling in the English Institute of Sport where I completed my PhD there, which looked at um, the physiological determinants of basically sprint cycling. However, during my time there, and most of my publications have been in endurance sport or endurance paradigms, in particular looking at the power duration relationship and its effect on performance. Yeah, well, to I think to to compare the uh, the team pursuit on the on the track, uh, we're talking about an event that is longer than, for example, uh, the fifteen hundred meters uh, on in running, and and that's a mid distance event. So, so I think it's fair to say that it's it's an endurance event uh, because I mean, okay, that we're talking about mid distance in in running terms, but it, it's clear that it's it's very endurance driven. So, so I agree with you. It is an endurance <laughs> event, although it is much much shorter than than most of of our events. Uh, still, a lot of the same training principles would apply, and. Uh, as you said, you work with the with the Dutch Federation, uh, and uh, we've just had the Olympics in Tokyo uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, now, a month and a half ago. So it's been that long. You, okay, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, time I flies. So. Um, you took home a number of medals in in the track cycling events, and in particular the sprint events. So, can can you talk us through how the games went from your perspective, and and what were kind of the keys to success there? Yeah. So, uh, from a sprint. Track sprint perspective, we got three golds, a silver and a bronze. Um, I, I think that went relatively well. Um, I was kind of aiming for a hope that we'd sneak one more medal in. Um, but unfortunately, there were some circumstances out of our control, for example, crashes that happened. Um, so generally, I thought that went, went quite well. Uh, so, it was a second part of the question, like, wh- why did we have that success? Or yeah, yeah. So, do you, are there any keys to success that you can point to? Um, that I mean, e- even if you felt you could have had another medal, the as, as an overall amount of medals, that's still more than most countries uh, <laughs> took home. So, so, uh, so, re- so compared to the competition, you were quite successful, even though you might have had in mind one more. Yeah. I, 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 I find it very uncomfortable saying that sort of thing because you're, at least I feel that one is in, in, inferring that you're doing something better than someone else. And I don't really know until you actually know what everyone else is doing. I, I guess where the strength came, um, what I thought we did well at least internally and maybe other nations do it as well or better than us or maybe not at all, I thought we had the right balance of having riders' input and coaching and scientific input. Like there was a nice blend of it, and we got everyone involved, rather than you know, it being one or the other, like being a 
uh, a binary system. Uh, and that's definitely something I learned from uh, working with the Who What Like guys uh, prior to all this, but uh, definitely getting the riders involved and the staff involved and kind of coming to a, a conclusion of, of training and approach together was definitely, I thought, a strong point. Yeah. Also, their think- openness trying new things as well, new training methods and, and different ways of thinking was also something that you have to give the riders credit for as well. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, that's an interesting point. And uh, in coaching, I think it's becoming quite trendy to talk about an, like an athlete-centered approach to coaching. And, and, and that's, I mean, it's easy to say that, oh, of course, uh, coaching is athlete centered but actually implementing it is it, it can look quite different and and if the coach is just prescribing the program then uh, is that really athlete centered of course the coach wants to do the best for their athletes but but actually getting the input from from the athlete and from the team around them as well like i, I think getting that balance right in in high performance in a high performance environment uh, I, I think it's definitely an area where uh, i imagine that there are quite big differences still between different federations, different teams, if you're talking about world tour cycling and, and so, so on. So it's interesting. It's an interesting point that, and um, um, this is more of a science podcast, but I think um, for me, having been a very, very mediocre athlete myself, the, the shift in coaching over the past 20 years or 10 years, even, it's been quite seismic where you know, it, it used to be speaking like this is what we're doing, this is the end, let's just get on with it, stop complaining, to you know, having a more I don't know, hybrid approach, let's call it. But I think it's having the right balance of, of getting the input from the rider. So, you know, I don't know, I'm making this up here, but if, Let's just make this example of it. If a sprinter wants to do, you know, 400k road rides a week you know, before a world championship, um, you probably have to challenge them and ask them why and, and try and get some reason, probably try and talk them out of it. Um, but the, but yeah, it, it's, I think the trick is getting the right blend with the right athlete. So it's a completely individual approach. So I wouldn't just say like it's athlete centered. So you know, there should be an exact input and output. For, oh, so input for coach and athlete or staff and athlete. I think it just should be trying to find the optimal one that works. And it's really an evolution of that relationship. It kind of never really stays the same. Um, so you can't really just say this is how it this is the model that we work to kind of is quite fluid. Um, yeah. I'd be curious to know how other federations do it, but yeah, I'm going to talk about myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's definitely a case that it, it has changed over the last decade or a couple of decades. Um, reading a book currently uh, by former world champion, Emma Carney in, in triathlon and uh, her descriptions of the, the training system that Triathlon Australia had in place in the kind of mid nineties when 
uh, when the part of the book where I'm, that I'm currently at is very much a coach-led approach and uh, yeah, completely different to what I think most uh, high-performance, at least successful high-performance environments look like these days. But but I, I still think that it probably exists in, in some corners. Yeah. But you, you mentioned there uh, the kind of 100k road rides leading into the race. Actually, I think it's something that well, I don't know much about, and most listeners don't know much about how track sprinters actually train. So can you uh, describe what a typical training week might look like for them? Well, I think most triathletes would probably not consider some of the sessions they do as sessions <laughs> because they're so short um, with so much rest in between. So um, it, the volume compared to an endurance athlete or triathlete, it's, it's so small. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some quick calculations. That, uh, some training weeks might have a total of three kilometers of work. So one week you're actually you know, not doing more than three kilometers on the track, um, which is obviously not even a warm up for some triathletes. Um, and also there's a lot of gym-based work. So between one and four times a week or three times a week, um, we spend a lot of time in the gym, but it's actually gym-focused. So I know a lot of endurance athletes. And again, I apologize if I'm wrong about this. I'm just stereotyping here. But I know endurance athletes use the gym or strength work as more kind of prehab, rehab, and maybe even like supplementary sessions. However, track sprinters use it as a cornerstone of their, their training where their sole goal of these training sessions are to try and improve their maximum strength or some yeah. aspect of it. Yeah. So so in a week like that, when, when you have, as you said, 3K or work on the track, um, what might the breakdown be of uh, the the session, like how many sessions would that mean on the track? And can you give an example of what one of the sessions <laughs> yeah, might look like? Yeah, so like it'll be between two and four. Uh, so in, in sprinting, the team sprint is the blue ribbon event, the one that kind of shows the overall strength of the of the, the squad, I guess, and is the most controlled. So it's a, a time trial, and it goes quick as forty one seconds. However, the man one should do it you know, in around 17 seconds, which is from a standing lap. So their training might consist of different combinations and permutations of starts. So it can be as small as or as short as 65 meters, 125 meters, and a couple of sets of those. Another session it could be some like uh, acceleration efforts, which are about two or three, or maybe even four, about 200 meters. Um, and then maybe a few flying 100 efforts, which is a 100 meter effort, but with a bit of a build up. So let's just say they're 30 seconds effort, five and so. So it's not much volume at all. And I think if a endurance athlete <laughs> just saw a training session, they wouldn't. I think they'll be shocked how little work they do and how much rest they have in between. But also even more surprised how tired they are 
after such short, sharp efforts. Mm. And, uh, and, and and is this in a race, kind of leading into a race in a specific preparation period, or and does the do you do do they do some sort of more collecting volume earlier in the year or, or something like that, or or is it kind of similar year year round? Yeah, it, it really depends on the coach um, and the athlete. Really, I think uh, I've heard. We do this as well. There are some, you know, I put it in inverted commas, endurance, like volume-based sessions. But, you know, again, I wouldn't call them, you know, to an endurance athlete, it'd probably be like a light one-hour warm-up, if that. But it's, it's, it's very, very low intensity, very, very low volume. So I guess the longest road ride they'd ever do is about two hours, two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, and any longer ones would be as far as possible from the competition. So uh, as you get closer to competition, all kind of volume in almost every aspect reduces, um, whereas intensity stays the same. So all, all track efforts, largely all out. Um, however, we, they just take out a lot of the volume and, But, but yeah, keep the intensity on the track. Yeah. So so when you're a month or two uh, out from from a race like the Olympics, how how much volume might might they be doing uh, off the track? Volume in terms of sessions or efforts or uh, se- sessions like just uh, sessions or t- total time uh, of that low intensity training, or or are they not doing any? Oh, low intensity, uh, training, low intensity training with a month before it's. Less than an hour a week, I'd say. Okay, a month yeah. Ago. So the reason for that is, and I guess it's you know, going to take anything, going to attenuate any of the maximal strength, maximal power capabilities of the body, and you want to get that firing, and, and yet you don't want to do anything to try and dampen that response. So usually the aerobic or low intensity aspect is virtually yeah it's it's interesting because when we compare a 40 second effort as you mentioned it, it's kind of like training for the 400 meters in in running similar time duration and and uh i'm by no means an expert on uh, how 400 meter runners train but but i do think from what i know that they they do quite a bit more aerobic volume uh some of them at least i think there is a bit of a Uh, sort of polarization there with some being definitely more on the focus on the quality side and, and others being I guess maybe a bit of a, a traditional school still having a relatively big aerobic base big is relative there of course it's nothing like the milers or 5k or 10k runners uh, would do but 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 still it, it sounds like I, I think that a lot of 400 meter runners would do quite a lot more but then again i'm not sure that that makes any sense because as you say it can take away from like it's such a short such an uh anaerobic effort that um yeah it's it's just interesting to hear for for somebody who is not not coaching that type of athletes at all what, what you're doing it's so with the four the mix i i trained with a group here in manchester um in the very early noughties when i got injured from a sport And it just so happened that this group was quite polarized. We had 
um, someone who went to the 2008 uh, Beijing Games to the 400 meters, and those like drivel, which included me. Actually, <laughs> the, the yeah, the, the the poor stand was led by myself. Um, and there's a largely aerobic based, and then the coach kind of switched it to kind of more kind of shorter, sharper stuff, and the uh, athletes actually had a an opposite response, except for one or two. So, yeah, it was, for sure, you're right there, like the 400 meters was like 50, 52 seconds for an amateur man. Um, yeah, it's, there's definitely more aerobic component to it, um, at least in a training point of view, than say cycling. Mm, yeah. It's great cycling. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, then in, in terms of uh, the preparations for Tokyo, uh, other than you mentioned already the, the the blend of athlete input, coach input, and uh, get, getting that aspect right. Um, are there any other things you can think of, or uh, if there's nothing else that you want to highlight, is there anything that you kind of learned that you would do differently for uh, for next time? Yeah, that's something I'm trying to drive right now. Definitely asking the athletes the review process in the start, but. Um, for the women, no. Um, I, I think, Michael, it, it, at this moment in time, because we're getting ready for Worlds and Euros, it's been like we haven't really had much time to decompress as a team and think about it. So uh, I only had one or two weeks, I can't even remember, off after the games. And we're back on it to try and prepare for the Euros and Worlds, particularly for non and the Olympians have joined last week. Um, so we actually have time to decompress and really think about it as a team. I think right now for me it's really difficult to try and think about, you know, well, put it this way, I, I try and think about is if all my results, or if all the results we got were fourth or fifth, would we be happy with the process? Um and was there anything we could learn from or done differently? Um, but at the moment, I'm kind of struggling. But I, that's not to say that I don't think there is. It's just like it's just it's too much going on. Yeah. But maybe in like one or two months' time, when you know we have time to sort of have some time off and have some proper reflection. Yeah. Uh, we'll, I'll, there'll definitely be a few pointers. Yeah. I might um, let you know. <laughs> One one more general training question. So so what is when when you add up? Uh, it's just interesting to compare, and, and I think maybe that's not something that you, that you uh, that that you consider like important because training is so different. But for triathletes, like when we talk about volume, like we add up all the total hours, swim, bike, run, and strength training, and okay, I train six hours per week, or ten hours per week, or twenty hours per week, or thirty hours per week. If if you do that for athletes, have you done that? Like how many hours roughly when you add up all the gym work and uh, the track work, of course, including the re the rest between intervals because that's part of the training because you need to need to rest from those sharp efforts. What 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 do you end up with? Yeah, so including warm up, um, track sessions are about three hours long. Hmm. Uh, if you include rest, the gym sessions are about one and a half hours. So, you know, let's just say for argument's sake, um, and you do different permutations and combinations. 
But let's just say they do three track and two gym, which isn't atypical. Um, yeah, that's just what, so nine, that's 12 hours, maybe a road ride, one hour for, for yeah, so if you include like the time taken from warm up to exiting the door, about 13 hours. Um, and before I came on this podcast, I did check on a few TSS scores of, um, I mean, I know TSS isn't a physiological measure and blah, 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 but it's something that people get a measure of, uh, or feel of like what it is and how, how the endurance impact of a training session and they're like six. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not much at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's funny. Um, yeah, I think uh, there's there's a lot we could we could discuss about the, the training, but but I have a actually a, a study that I want to discuss. So so maybe let's get into that that uh, that uh, you were the lead author of. It's the relationship between neuromuscular function and W prime in elite cyclists, and I think this is relevant for a fairly large amount of listeners here because we have not just triathletes but also cyclists like mountain bikers. Uh, crit racers, road cyclists for whom W prime would be an important measure, even for some triathletes, if they're in a draft legal triathlon. Um, and generally I think a lot of interest listeners are interested in physiology. So, so I think it's a cool study and I want to discuss it. But well, Michael, uh, I've got to give you kudos because uh, on your email, when you contacted me, you didn't use the uh, apostrophe, you used the correct symbol for W prime. So, um, any academic listening to this will know what I mean, but that's a, a good touch. So, kudos to you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, so, so, so let's just um, discuss first as a background, uh, what was the reason for you embarking on, on that study? It's quite a convoluted um, story of how I got onto that study, these sort of studies. So, um, as I said to you, my PhD was in, in, in sprint physiology, but at the time... It was dragged out over five years, but it was part-time. Well, it wasn't dragged out. That was always the plan. Uh, it was part-time lab technician and, and physiologist as well. So during my tenure, I wanted to kind of learn a bit more about endurance physiology simply because I hadn't come from a sports science background at all. I've been an athlete, but I've, I've been in science, but I'm a failed accountant but uh, not an endurance uh, or any sports science background at all. And there was a physiologist there called Len Parker Simpson. And I was just curious and saying, look, I want to learn more about endurance physiology. What do you recommend? And he just talked about the power duration relationship and how he's starting to do that. So he just taught me how to actually just execute it and then get to know a bit more. Now, Part of my PhD, I had endurance riders, the sprint riders, try and compare their physiology on, on like why the sprinters are better than endurance riders at producing max power. But part of the deal with the coaches was that I also gave them a power duration test. So I collated all this neuromuscular data with uh, power duration data, and you have to look at it from a different aspect which isn't sprinting, but actually um, kind of neuromuscular, if you want to call it that, or strength 
um, influences um, in the power duration relationship. And then Can you give some examples of what, what that neuromuscular data might be for those the listeners that might not be aware? So the initial study was simply uh, muscle volume. So that's measured by MRI scan. It's the same thing, you know, you check like a brain bleed or like that, you can get the muscle volume. Um, uh, maximal voluntary force or torque where you have an isometric dynamometer and you press against it as hard as you can and it can measure the force or torque depending on what they're both the same thing it's just force um, doesn't have a moment on is independent of the moment on um, the other things I looked at in that other study was panation angles so panation angles how the fascicles of the muscle um, are aligned so it's uh, essentially gearing of a muscle because if you have bigger pronation angle you can pack more sarcomeres into the muscle and sarcomeres are the uh, most basic unit of muscle so the more of those you have the stronger you are and the more force you can produce but also you have a fascicle length which is the longer um, these sarcomeres are kind of put together in series the muscle can contract faster. And what we saw in that original study that um, it was maximal voluntary strength. Um, we had a strong correlation, but not, we didn't, couldn't determine whether it was the causation of W prime. Now, um, and muscle volume of all those factors I just measured, uh, sort of told you was the biggest uh, physiological underpinning of that. So that that was the initial study um, which, which uh, I used that as the base to go into the study we're talking about. I want to get into a bit more in-depth neuromuscular assessment of what influenced W by. Mm. So so to summarize where we are at this point, you you had found it so muscle volume relates to the maximum voluntary force or maximum voluntary torque and and you found a a correlation between between that and and W prime. So the exactly. higher, yeah. And so and by muscle volume and uh, maximum voluntary torque of the quadriceps. Mm. Yeah. So not just you know not just some random muscle in your body. Mm. So um, so so what would you say are the implications of those findings? I mean, be, because. We can, from a training perspective, if somebody wants to improve their W prime, then I guess a very typical and uh, normal gut reaction to that problem or a solution to that problem would be, okay, I'm going to go out and do a bunch of really high intensity training and, mm-hmm. and really practice that. But but potentially, if if it indeed is really strongly correlated with your actual muscle strength, then maybe it's more the type of training that your sprinters do with really sort of gym work that would work best. That's kind of what I'm thinking as I'm reading your study. What, what's, yes. your, what's your take as, as for the implications and applications of the study? Sorry. Um, the study I was just talking about was the one before this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that set it up for the, the study you're talking about now. Okay. And, okay. Um, what we did, because we wanted to investigate a bit more, like what actually influences that, or can we see any other links? 
Um, and if you want me to go into the methodology a bit more, a bit more of the nerdy yeah, stuff, more than happy to. Is that what you want? Or yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's do a little okay, bit more. Perfect. So, so we found out that, that in the initial study that I talked about, um, there are a number of limitations. Number one, that you know, the other factors we need to try and assess the, you know, to understand the neuromuscular factors influence W prime. Number two, we only had 10 participants, um, which is a good number for elite athletes, elite cycling studies, but we kind of needed more. Um, and some of the methodology could be, um, could act as a limitation. So, for example, the dynamometer we used uh, had a lot of compliance. So it was a commercially available dynamometer with padding and it was made for comfort and rehab. So that means a lot of the force could be absorbed by the padding and the moment arm was warping a lot. So we had to try and refine the methodology a bit and get more more athletes in essentially. So the good news about this one is we got a lot more athletes in from a lot more endurance disciplines. I think it was um, mountain bike, track endurance, few road riders and, and elite time trialers. I think the beauty of this one as well is we had some kilo riders from the para tandems who I was coaching at the time. So kilo riders um, or kilometer time trial is um, four laps in the track, but there is a massive aerobic component. And you have to be able to have some kind of aerobic ability, at least in my opinion, to be able to um, perform the kilo well. And they were familiar to the critical power, W prime, power duration protocols that I was using. So I included them as well. So we had a really good broad range of, of, of athletes. And what we also did is we uh, got a custom-made dynamometer, which had and it looked like a torture chair, and I guess to a certain extent it kind of was. Um, it had zero compliance, so you were just sitting on um, a, hard, a very, very hard, uncomfortable chair where your body's at the right angles. You had a, a, a industry standard calibrated uh, load cell that measured force out of your ankle. And um, the things we measured were rate of force development, uh, rate of torque development of the quadriceps that 50 milliseconds, 200 milliseconds, maximum voluntary torque, so the most torque we can put over three seconds, voluntary activation of the quadriceps, and also peak power output on a turbo. And with that, we use those to try and make inferences of almost like elimination of the neuromuscular factors. So the rate of force development, just to come again, just to inform your listeners, is the amount of force you can produce out uh, in a or talk in uh, a very small time window. So, 50 milliseconds is the amount of talk you can produce in 50 milliseconds, and 200 milliseconds is the same with a uh, longer time window. Maximum voluntary talk is you have three seconds or five seconds to produce as much talk as you want. Now, with a 50 millisecond one, that's more neural factors. So, that really is your muscle fiber type comp uh, composition, largely muscle activation and motor unit discharge, like good and fresh and 
I'd like it to be your sort of, uh, yeah, as well as other factors. And the, to- uh, the maximum voluntary contractions, the brief maximum voluntary talk, is the other side of the paradigm where it's just pretty much how strong you are. And it's just it's how much muscle you can pack into that, into that, um, yeah, into that muscle. And it's less neural factors because the time uh, period is is kind of null and void now. You're taking that out. So what we saw was that um, the longer the time period from fifty to hundred to maximum volume contraction the better the correlation or relationship with W prime. So what that effectively implied was there was um, muscle activation of fiber type composition were really not a big influence uh, in W prime. And rather it was just essentially muscular strength and maximum force, which is really to do with probably uh, muscle mass or, or muscle, yeah, some type of musculature and maybe even sort of muscle tendon stiffness, but that is really kind of a grey area of what we saw. Furthermore, we also saw that the voluntary activation, which I've got to kind of go into a bit more detail about, is where we stimmed, electrically stimmed the athletes on their femoral nerve. So we literally electrocuted them there's also a very, very poor correlation. The peak power also showed a very good correlation along with the maximum voluntary torque. And the biggest determinant of peak power is maximum voluntary torque. So all the data suggested that if you get stronger, your W prime is going to increase. Mm. Now, I must, again, um, to highlight that this wasn't a cause and effect study, this was a correlation cross sexual study. So there is still a gap in the literature that someone, hopefully one day myself or someone else brighter than me, can demonstrate that if a group of elite athletes get stronger, their W prime will proportionally increase. I mean, that'll be the the, 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 the final argument to, to say that strength training is, is what we need. But essentially, yes. From this study, I would recommend that an athlete get stronger or be able to produce more peak power output. And you can do that by doing short, sharp sprints. You'll hit quite a, uh, you'll hit a glass ceiling pretty quickly, in my opinion. Or you can just introduce strength training to your training regime, which should help improve the W prime. And for getting stronger, what sort of strength training would you recommend in, in that instance? Very good question. It depends on the athlete. So assuming there's no injuries and uh, no vulnerable areas of your body, for example, back is the most common thing, the strength lifts, or as they're known, ironically, the power lifts, so uh, deadlift and back squat or front squat uh, are quite good simply because they're compound movements which means they're multi-muscle multi group movements um, and they really sort of recruit a lot of the uh, the muscles used in 
in most linear energetic sports. However, if you can't do that and you're not too comfortable with it or don't have access to a gym coach or someone who can uh, help you get into that um, or be able to do it properly, I'd recommend stuff like uh, close chain movements like leg press or knee extensors or something like that. As I really think that strength training rather than or or compromised strength training, if you want to call it that, rather than no strength training is will benefit an athlete of any kind of duration. And and how would you um, structure those sets? Would would it be targeting in terms of the rep ranges and the weights? Would you really be focused on on hypertrophy that that sort of protocol? Uh, or, or yeah, can you can you just go into what what you would recommend in terms of reps and weights? Yeah, I think I'm I'm very cautious to kind of say that simply because you know. Um, uh, uh, the ideal situation is get them as strong as possible. Now, when I my determination of strength in this sort of paradigm or or, or a viewpoint is you know, how much maximal force you can put out in one effort. So, if you translate that to the real world, that's basically one rep max. If you improve that, now I'm not saying athletes should do one rep maxes simply because you know you're doing so much volume. Uh, you really have to kind of be careful of what you do. But generally speaking, you know, if you improve your 3RM or maybe endurance like 5RM, you are going to improve your 1RM, at least indirectly. So I would just say if you're going to do gym training, you should aim to at least at some point um, be able to do sort of three to five rep max improvement. Yeah. Uh, and it's interesting because that's generally like the the kind of range that is often recommended for endurance athletes in the literature if you read for example the the stuff by Ben Trennestad who's done a bunch of work in in that realm uh, he he would uh, I mean that, that's what their group and all the, the meta-analysis and, and things that they've done have have found that generally works best for improving endurance performance uh, but but interestingly, the mechanisms I think that are often talked about is that yes, you improve your your strength, your maximal strength uh, through that training. But but for at least my understanding of reading that literature is that they actually reference new, the neural component because you don't see any an increase in muscle size or hypertrophy with with that type of training. So so my question becomes: Do you think that uh, if somebody is really really wants to potentially maximize their strength gains and by doing so their W prime would there also be would it also be reasonable to maybe have a hypertrophy period where where you would really kind of focus on the size rather than the strength and then build the strength on top of that if you see what I mean or how yeah so, so essentially um, just reflecting back on your kind of kind of uh, suggesting that it's kind of a standardized periodization way kind of start off with less intense more reps mm. and just yep. build up the intensity and drop the reps is, is that correct yeah 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 i mean for sure particularly if you're a novice and don't have that sort of thing uh, experience in gym training yes i think you know, repetition of things incorrectly and using it slowly i think it's, it's very very beneficial however 
Um, I do think that yes, it, it will help. I think the, the bigger benefits will will come if you get more and more experience and be able to do more intense lifts and, and, and efforts. I don't think I think particularly with, with endurance athletes, you know, they just think more is more. And strength training, you know, I'll do like ten reps instead of eight. But actually probably better doing six reps or seven reps with slightly more weight and failing than the other way around. Having said that as well, with the amount of endurance training they're doing, it's pretty difficult to to do that many reps simply because all you're adding is more fatigue. So you're basically just fatiguing yourself more. So unless it's more of a means to an end, i.e. lifting more weight at lower reps, I would just suggest that's almost uh, it's adding fatigue to it. Yeah. So whoever's listening to this, you know, I'm not saying go and do a squat rack and, and back squat without any kind of guidance or experience. You one RM and come back. I think it's a very controlled, measured approach. But the end goal should always be a particular point in time, not necessarily just before racing. You want to have like a uh, a time point of peak strength, and you have to decide yourself with your coach, or someone. Um, what peak strength looks like for you. So it could be three reps, it could be five reps. For me, I would suggest the lower the reps, the better. But obviously you have to sort of balance that with um, with reality. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, one thing I find for well, for triathletes in particular, and I, I, I don't think we're doing it wrong, it's just the nature of our sport and uh, the relative needs of strength training there, we tend to do the strength training as a definite supplementary activity. It would be kind of your second or third workout in a day. So you don't negatively impact your swim, bike, run. You would already be obviously quite fatigued by then. And and uh, I think we might not be the best at, or I know a lot of people are not the best at taking appropriate rests between sets and also um, nutritionally making sure that you benefit from the strength training i uh, i feel that maybe if if somebody wants to focus on really improving their maximum strength like taking care of those things like doing the strength training as your first session of the day when you're fresh and making sure that you have good nutritional habits around it and uh, and resting appropriately between sets that those might be really key things to to think about so because that's how you can actually increase your strength and not just being stagnant because i do think that with with a lot of endurance athletes it's difficult to increase strength uh, you you can you can do the lifting but but increasing strength is is difficult when when you have all the swimming biking and running going on as well but but for cyclists for example it, it becomes a lot easier when you only have the one discipline and you can choose to do the strength training perhaps first yeah uh, yeah, yeah you're absolutely right and i think all endurance athletes, and rightly so, value the sessions that they think are markers of them going quicker or performance. So, for example, no traffic is going to come out running and high-fiving someone if they've got a new one hour max if their performances in the run, bike, or swimmer are reduced. They don't care about that. Um, 
what I would say is you can be a bit creative in kind of sneaking these sessions in. So, for example, it could be a light day and you get them to run to the gym, which could be, I don't know, say 4K, and they're already warm. So they have to do a few mobility stretches or a cycle and they could cycle back, you know, to you know, 30 or one hour there, 30 minutes there and one hour there, 30 minutes, one hour back. And that way it kind of works out as kind of a compromise. And you can just build off that so they may or may not see any benefits. So, yes, it's difficult to persuade a traffic, particularly one who's got success. Um, but, you know, do your strength session first when you're fresh. Um, particularly as it will probably impact your later sessions anyway. Um, but you can be quite creative in actually combining the two and then using that as a basis to kind of build up. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. And and I do think that for most triathletes, it's it's not a priority necessarily. But I, but we also have a lot of cyclists, for example, listening to this podcast. And and depending on the discipline and the goals of the athlete, I think that's where there is a lot more implications and uh, and interest in 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 actually in in this in in increasing your strength in order to to improve your w prime potentially because it's it's so much more critical there than than in especially long distance triathlon that that is the majority of of the listeners it it might be for some athletes in short course triathlon that are limited uh anaerobically and uh, there might definitely be some uh, some interest in this as well but but i think it's perhaps more so on the kind of single sport cycling side of things even uh even runners and rowers we have some uh, some athletes on, from those disciplines listening so so that might be be another application um i'm just looking through my notes here if there's anything else regarding uh, this study that uh, there was go there was one thing actually and that was uh, you commented about the 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 muscle fiber types and uh, that the fact that it's more related to size than uh, muscle, sorry, muscle strength and and size. Then that the neural factors would perhaps imply that it's not so much related to uh, to the fiber type. Uh, did I understand that correctly? Yeah, yeah. So um, that's that's an interesting one because um, would my my gut reaction would have been that well the the strength and the size would also be related to muscle fiber type. So a more fast twitch dominant athlete would 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 perhaps be more be stronger uh and uh, and have a bigger muscle mass so can you correct me on that and, and explain uh ex- explain sort of the rationale there well i'm not going to correct you because i might, might be wrong um, but it was just with this limited uh data set that we have um and have used um it, it's it's really eliminating the fast switch fiber so if um, the rate of torque development at 50 milliseconds showed really a really good relationship with W prime. Then it would be, or, or let's just say, the relationship with W prime was independent of the time period. So it doesn't matter whether you're producing torque at 50 milliseconds, 200, or you know, no time point. It, it would suggest that that. Um, yeah, the, the neural factors 
uh, and or muscle fiber type would be uh, at least a significant determinant of or main determinant of W prime. Um, so it's really by process elimination of an indirect measure that we've taken that out. Mm. But I think the reason for that is if you think about so if you do a maximum voluntary effort or contraction to measure maximum voluntary torque, or actually, let me, let me go a different way. So uh, muscle fiber types, the only real difference between from performance aspect, at least in my opinion, a slow twitch and a fast twitch muscle fiber is the time in which you can exert the force. So um, if you have the same kind of um, cross-sectional area, the muscle fiber, um, yeah, and your type 1 and type 2, you the, the amount of force they can exert should be the same if you take out time. And um, that kind of makes sense with the W prime because it's you don't need to do it quickly, and it's not like cadence dependent. So then you sort of bash out as many sort of revolutions as you can because you can have to change the gear as well. So it's really just a matter of just getting it out, and because W prime can drag on for as you know, you can take up to forty minutes to complete the whole of your. your, your W prime, it kind of makes sense, at least conceptually, that you don't need muscle fiber type. Having said that, um, I think if you have fast twitch fibers, I think you have a very big W prime compared to your, your critical power, proportionally. But that's not the, the, the reason why we're looking at the studies. Kind of like, okay, what do you need? What are the determinants of W prime? Does that make sense? Good. It does make it does make sense, and you've definitely improved my understanding about the uh, muscle fiber types. There uh, could could it perhaps then be related to the fact that uh, the type two fibers are more likely to quote unquote by default have a larger cross sectional area, so you are more likely to have a larger muscle mass, but but not necessarily you can you can increase that cross sectional area with your slow twitch fibers. So so that's. Uh, that, that's per, that's the reason that you do see that time component being uh, being important. And I, I don't know if that question makes sense. It, it made sense in my head, though. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so, just to understand what it meant. You're saying is, is just the the time component being so long in W prime. So you, you can't really exert W prime in a minute, really. Um, and therefore, because it's it's really dragged out, that the fast switch fibers don't have such a significant say in it. Is that what you're saying? I'm trying to. I, I, lo- I lost my thought there, so so I'm not, I'm not even I'm saying it. <laughs> okay, cool. uh, but but I, I think I think it, I think it it what you're saying does does make sense to me. I, I just have this like understanding that that uh, since you have you you have this correlation between muscle size muscle mass and w prime and and i would and and I, I might be wrong here i would generally sort of correlate in my head a larger muscle mass and larger muscle size with a person who is also potentially more type 2 dominant yeah as, uh, as would i so, yeah yeah so so that's why 
so but you also have no correlation between the or or you sorry you see this dependence on the time so so when when you have a very short rate of force development 50 milliseconds then that sort of i i understand what you're saying there that that's very neural and it's type if if type 2 fiber type fiber dominance would be important then you would see a, a very clear difference at that time point um i i guess the the conflict in my head is that doesn't muscle size also pose such a conflict uh in in that muscle size might be related to fiber type in in that the people with with a larger muscle size are yeah you're absolutely right in what you're thinking like the evidence does suggest that so don't think you're you know, you're not you're thinking something sort of stupid there um that that is something that we we can't actually prove so we as i said earlier that we're using this this i don't know how to call it like a holistic measure let's call it of explosiveness or neural factors which includes fast fibers to kind of eliminate it rather than say anything else about it. But I think one thing I will say is that in studies I've done, sprint, sprinters, so very, very successful world-class sprinters, have very, very low portion of type 2 fibers, as people might expect, but track sprinters, that is. Hmm. And the reason for that is, so, and then okay, I'm kind of shifting into sprint physiology to make my point here. So yep. um, let's assume sprinting is fatigue-free, just for argument. So if it's not, but let's just assume it is. So um, watts are produced by torque over crank revolution times cadence or angular velocity. And that creates power. Now, um, and that's the same force times angular velocity or speed is the same in any modality of sport or, or, or linear energetics. So whether it's uh, rowing or whatever, it's, that's what creates propulsion. Cycling is one of the only sports, with the exception of rowing to a certain degree, because you can change the inboard and output, but that's a discussion from another time that you can actually change your cadence quite aggressively. So you can do, um, so the stronger you are or the less fast switch fibers you have, you can just gear up and just basically press against it. Whereas if you, if you have more fast switch fibers, you can ped- a better peddler, as it's called, you know, you can gear down and still have the same speed. So cycling provides a way you can almost mask your type one, type two um, properties, unless you do like a max cadence test or a, or a torque cadence test where you can see your max cadences. So it, it's really difficult to kind of split it out in, in, in what we're saying. And, I, and this study is more just saying, yeah, it's likely not to be fast twitch or, or, or muscle fiber type dependent but we can't say for sure it is. Mm, it's yeah. more likely to be eliminated than not. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Uh, and so yeah. sprinters, so sorry, the point of being with sprinters, they have their max cadences compared to endurance cyclists. So people who do like hundreds of kilometers a, uh, a week, 
their max cadences aren't different on average than those guys. So that basically means like, you know, they're, they're like, take a chain off and sprint as fast as you can. The number they get, the highest number they get, isn't so different, in some cases lower than endurance riders. However, the thing that really separates them is the max torque. So basically, they, so their performances can be adjusted on this gearing up or gearing down, which again hides within the fact they've got fast switch or, or slow twitch muscles. But yeah, but you're not wrong. Mm, okay. Yeah. No, that that makes makes perfect sense. Um, Sorry, I rambled on a bit there, Michael. So. No, no, uh, it's it's great, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think uh, per- perfect to hear. Sort of not just the uh, the paper as uh, you know read out from from the abstract, but talking about it and and discussing around it. That's that's what this is about, and uh, I, I really enjoy it. So uh, another paper that I want to discuss uh, just a bit more more briefly, perhaps, but but it's something that we have discussed in in some episodes uh, on the podcast previously. Aero sensors, and you have a study where you have investigated the reliability and sensitivity of the Nosio Connect on bike mm-hmm. aero sensor. So can you uh, just briefly discuss what you did there and what you found? Yeah, um, we. We actually looked at three different aero sensors uh, to assess for this study. Uh, and we were looking to publish the results. Of that. So, so we stuck all three in a wind tunnel to see like, how they would react and things like that. And we just thought the Notio was the easiest one to use. And we just thought it was more suitable than what we saw in the wind tunnel. It's They all when using the range they're calibrated at, they're all pretty good in terms of measuring what the wind is measuring in the wind tunnel. But we just thought that the, the no-share was just suited on a number of things and it has the wider range of, um, of error. Like, uh, it's a better range of error. So if you, if you calibrated it out, uh, say, I don't know, 35 kilometers an hour, it had more a better range outside of that, whereas others just showed you know, uh, it had to be within that. So we didn't just pick the no-show because we felt like it. There was actually a reason why. And then we looked at its reliability and sensitivity. And the reason for that is, is well, there's a number of reasons. First one, reliability just simply means, like, if you run it again and again and again and again, what's the noise? So if every, you know, you have a human, you have a, bar, you have a power meter, you have, um, speed sensor and every measuring and the notion and every measuring device has its own error so you know if something says 400 watts that's plus or minus something it's giving you exactly 500 watts so the idea of the reliability is if you get a rider and the world instrumentation and repeat the task again and again and again what is the noise and what's the signal. Um, and that's what we did. So we got them on the bikes, the track bikes, and just repeated the same runs again and again and again. And that just simply gives you the value of, okay, how much, at the most fundamental level, how much of a difference do I need to see for it to be a difference? Well, I know it to be a difference. 
rather than okay, that's just noise. Like that's just that could be me moving around. That could have been the power meter. That could have been something else. The sensitivity is then trying to take it one step further, which is okay. I've seen a change, but okay, how good a change was it? Um, and kind of differentiate between change A and change C, for example. And the way we did that was, in my eyes, quite clever, if I may say so myself, but it's something that's been used before by I think, Tom Compton um, from back in the day and some, some people who might know him. Um, and we kind of bastardized that and tried to make it fit our thing, which was we got some laser cut discs, flat laser cut discs, and a kind of a aerofoil rod, stuck it on the bike. And before, before we stuck it on the bike, we run them in the wind tunnel to see exactly what we should be seeing as a difference or changes in resistance, and also run it mathematically, so theoretically, to make sure it was clear. And then we got them to repeat the same runs, and then adding the discs of different sizes and seeing whether the no-show could identify it or not. And we managed to... Uh, I think there were small as four centimetres each disc, and one up to ten centimetres. And we saw, generally speaking, that, yeah, they were able to see these uh, differences which I think equates to four watts at, I think it was 45k an hour, mm. um, which is pretty sensitive. Um, so, I mean, it, it is great use for the, the user, which basically means that if you can find out your reliability, that you know, don't change your helmet or anything like that, you know what a difference should and shouldn't be, or at least give yourself a protocol of how to do something to improve yourself. Um. So yeah, sorry, that's just a, a, a very long summary of the of the experiment. Yeah, and no, that's 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 great, and uh, that's uh, really I think the key takeaway that that I wanted to hear there is um, yeah, is there is is it even uh, reliable and sensitive enough in the first place to be to be a usable tool? And um, I don't know where you're working with who what bike at the time because I do know that they, in addition to other testing, wind tunnel. Uh, and general track testing day i talked to dan bigham and and he talked about uh using some of these aero sensors uh with with the hubbot bike team so so was that around the same time or was it before it wasn't around the same it was actually the data collection was done pretty much this time last year um i dan had a hubbot bike had definitely introduced me to the no show connect but we didn't go with the no-show because of that that relationship. We just introduced to them to at least have the initial, uh, like I said earlier, with the three other error sensors we used. But yeah, I only got introduced by no-show and, and uh, the concept and the product through Dan. But it wasn't because of that that I, I ran it. Mm, okay. I used it. Yeah. Um one more question on on that um did, does it matter if we so if if we know can it even be measured like i'm just I, I i don't know off the top of my head if there is a method that can really confirm the validity 
Oh, by that I mean, like, is it is it accurate in terms of measuring the, for example, the CDA, or is it is it good enough if we want to, for a use case perspective, we want to just see the changes when we, for example, change the helmet or the position, that it's reliable and sensitive. Do do we know any sort of validity studies? Is it important? What's your view on that? So validity is. is in, in so yeah, there are three aspects: uh, reliability, sensitivity, and validity. And they all have benefits. You know, so if, if someone's valid, something's valid. You don't need reliability and sensitivity because if a number is what it's telling you, then that's what it's telling you. Um, and then obviously you can add the sensitivity to it because then obviously there are differences, and therefore you don't need reliability. In measuring CDA, it's it's almost impossible to run a validity study simply because what is valid, what is what can you compare it to? So when you when you have to run a validity study, you have to have a gold standard that you have to compare it to, and that gold standard. Is never to have his own limitations as well. So, I guess someone listening to this would be like, "Well, obviously the wind tunnel is a standard." Yes, true to a certain extent, but you know, it doesn't take into account the bends of a velodrome uh, or, or anything like that. It's you know, it's quite cold for a rider, so they, they might move around a lot. In my experience, if you're in a wind tunnel. You see riders like taking these completely different positions, <laughs> uh, you know, way more airy than they are on the track, um, or not. Um, and just marrying the two doesn't always, um, yeah, well, actually, more often than not, they're not the same number. And ultimately, the calibration of the balance in the wind tunnel. Uh, it's probably different from the calibration of all the instruments in the bike. So I think in from a CDA point of view, and I'm not an expert on this, but I definitely from my experience of measuring CDA and, and understanding of it, if there is, isn't quite a valid, almost be impossible to run a validity study, hmm. simply because we don't really know what the, the standard is. So one thing I definitely recommend to, to most people is if you're going to do an aero test or an aero sensor or even a wind tunnel, it should be for that and that alone, that time period. And if you want to do it again, you run your baselines again and do changes. So don't, yeah, I just wouldn't say, I wouldn't walk around saying, yeah, my CDA is at like 0.173. Uh, and I, I did it two weeks later and it was point two zero. I'm rubbish or something's not right there it's just the way it works in terms of um, it's just the way it is because this is never going to be the same and the aero sensor has to be in exactly the same spot, exactly the same point um, again and again and again and just by the law of averages or probability it's going to probably move slightly which means the CDA measures are going to be off slightly as well. So yeah. I would just say every, and this is just my opinion, someone else might have a different one, which is if your CDA 
if you're a wind tunnel test or a track aero test, just use it for that time period and use it as a snapshot and do changes from the baseline rather than just taking it as that is my CDA. I'm going home there. Yeah. No, that is definitely the message that has come through in, in other interviews and conversations I've had as, as well and uh, makes makes complete sense. Um, yeah. Uh, now, just uh, about the future, what's uh, what's next for you? Do you have any research projects or are you focused on the coaching side of things? Yeah, I mean, I always... Um, like, I love coaching. I just love interacting with the athletes and... That is something I just love doing. Um, however, I'm always, always interested in, in like research. And so, yeah, I've still got research in, in the power duration stuff coming out um, and sprint. Uh, so that's not going to change. Simply because I enjoy it, and I think a lot of my work and thoughts are quite hard to be fact-checked, if that makes sense. So I quite like it being published because it means there's two academics or anonymous people that the editor's given it to that also thinks that what I'm thinking and writing is valid rather than me just sitting in a room thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm great um, and therefore this is amazing. So I, I definitely am currently publishing and will publishing research. And also I think it's one of the frustrations I had when I got in, in, in sports science was everything seems so guarded. And I do want to get the knowledge out there because hopefully someone might apply it or think it's rubbish and make it better and just move the game on. I really think that, um, that collaboration and, and using other people's work to make things better or something that isn't done enough. So I'm just trying to get everything out there and if anyone wants to use it or improve it or just read it and go, that's a load of garbage, I'm never going to do that again or never do what that guy did. Uh, great. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that point and uh, and uh, definitely uh, I appreciate that that's what you've done here on this podcast, uh, getting your information, your knowledge out there to, to the listeners. And uh, that's something that I think uh, I'm very appreciative of all, all the coaches and, and scientists coming on here and, and doing the same. And uh, and I'm, I know the listeners are too. So thank you for that. And uh, now uh, let's move on to the rapid fire questions. So take just one sentence to answer each of these. And the first one is, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource? Google. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah. Uh, if I if I specify related to sports or science, SciHub. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Can I say that? Is that is that illegal to say that? Like a friend. Uh, I've I've mentioned it once, I think, before on the podcast. So uh, uh, okay, an official one. Um, don't know. Sci-hub is fine. Sci-hub is fine. Yeah, yeah. Um, What's an important habit that you've benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? So so again, Uh, an an important habit that you have benefited from uh, athletically, professionally, or personally. 
don't be afraid to admit you're not right and swallow your ego. Hmm. And uh, who's somebody that you have looked up to uh, or that has inspired you? My old rowing coach, Chris George, he's, he's actually trying to go for Kona now. Um, and he's 75, I believe. Um, yeah. And he, he's the one who just told me, like, he taught me how to row better, you know, a former rower. And it's the way he did it all. Basically, he, he just went in the boat with me and just went, no, 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 this is how he rode. And just kept doing it until he just broke me down. <laughs> but I'm really indebted to him because I learned so much from him and he just did it all for free. So, yeah, I'd love to say Chris George. Yeah, amazing trying to go for, for Kona at 75. Uh, let's hope that that Kona happens sooner rather than later because it's, uh, I don't know if you've heard, but it's uh, postponed again from October to February. Oh, was it actually, I heard the rumor that it was yeah. two weeks ago. But it's yeah. actually confirmed now. Yeah, it is. It is confirmed, and yeah, uh, yeah the, there is a lot of rumblings about that. <laughs> Let's yeah. just be, was it? Uh, I'm, I'm taking this because of COVID, right? Yes, yes, because of the uh, the local restrictions in terms of right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's uh, not not something that Ironman themselves have decided. I think the the discontent with Ironman is perhaps related to not appointing a different world championship now that it will be the second year running that they haven't actually had an Ironman world championship uh, when when they could do a venue where people from most parts of the world can travel to and where it's possible to to host a race because they're running obviously a lot of other races are going ahead now so uh, so yeah there's there's a lot of dis- discontent around that uh, is uh, around the the triathlon communities that's a shame that's a shame yeah um, they, did they just move it to February? They moved it to February, yeah. And uh, but then, then the, the question mark is around uh, whether whether things will actually be better in February. Right now, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but yeah, but it's, that's a very very good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's what happened last year as well, as I said. And and then uh, <laughs> February did not happen uh, this year in 2021. So yeah, we'll we'll see. It's it's interesting if you follow. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I better Yeah. Well, uh, one more thing. Uh, where can listeners follow you? Uh, our social media, uh, uh, ResearchGate, and so on. What, what are the best outlets for that? Um, I don't know what are the best ones, but I am on social media. I'm on ResearchGate, so I think all the papers that we've you've brought up yep. and more um, uh, are on there, and I always upload them on there as and when they're done, so they're free. Um, or at least I think they should. Yeah, I don't know what, what the rules are, but I put them up there anyway. Um, I'm on Twitter and Instagram, but I don't think that's a, a good resource for endurance. But yeah, I'm on <laughs> Well, if somebody's interested, I'll put, yeah, uh, just put it in the show notes. I think my Twitter handle, that's the right word, is it handle? Yeah, so yeah. Uh, it's medicordy. And I think Instagram is maybe probably 11. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the one. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Mehdi. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and, uh, well, congratulations on many medals uh, that you've contributed to in, in the Olympics. Uh, that's a great achievement. So, uh, yeah, good luck with with uh, the Euros and, and other races coming up. 
Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for having me on. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Uh, I'm sure that some of you will be wondering why we're talking track sprinting on a triathlon podcast. And the simple answer is curiosity. As you heard, the Dutch track cyclists are among the best in the world, as we clearly saw in the Olympics. And even if their training might not be directly applicable to triathlon training, Talking to coaches in any high-performance environment and learning about their practices uh, in, in any sport or arena definitely indirectly contributes to an increased understanding of your own sport. And you can always gain some, some insights and even just uh, understanding better how to think about training and the, the process of training. I think those sorts of things are, are always really valuable. An, anal- an analogy to this would be that some of the greatest musicians in the world play not just one instrument but multiple instruments so uh, and that and that can be an advantage for their main their main instrument as well or closer to home look at swimming the top swimmers can do all strokes really well even if they might specialize in just one of the different strokes so i hope you enjoyed it and uh, do send me feedback either way that's always appreciated to learn more about what you like why you like it what you don't like why you don't like it and so on so you can always email me with feedback for any episode and if you want to check out the show notes for this episode you can find them on scientifictriathlon.com with uh, links to the papers we discussed and uh, made this uh, social profiles as well as some related episodes first we have uh, aerodynamic testing in the field with michael lieberson where we talked about different aero sensors so that's uh, related to the last topic that we discussed here with the notion connect uh, aero sensor also to two very recent episodes with nate wilson and adil twaiten who are the coaches of the gold medalists from tokyo in the triathlon in the uh, women's and men's race respectively so if you want to hear more about tokyo preparations from a triathlon perspective then uh, go and have a listen to episode 303 and 304 if you're interested in taking your triathlon to the next level then do check out our coaching services and training plans we would be glad to help you uh, reach your future goals uh, take your fitness to another level and help you out in any way that we can also remember to check out the training camp that we have planned for and the end of march early april of 2022 you can find more information about that on scientifictriathlon.com there is a training camp link in the menu bar big thanks finally to our sponsors precision hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com go and take their free online sweat test to find out how much sodium you lose in your sweat and get a free hydration strategy for your next race and get 15 percent off your first order of electrolytes or the precision fuel uh, energy product range with the promo code that triathlon show one five and thank you to roca that you can find on roca.com Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear and prescription glasses and sunglasses and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving craft life.